As we approach uh, the sermon today, as we come to this time of the service, um, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for a lot of things, but um, some of these changes that we've made uh, to the service, the order of worship that we've got, um, they're new and as I've clearly displayed this morning, kind of awkward um, for me to go through at least. Um, but it, one thing I truly appreciate about the changes is that through the whole process of the service, it feels like we really are being called into God's presence. And that his presence, he's really here. He dwells with his people. Um, and I may have stumbled through some of that stuff and whatever, but I'm just so comforted by the fact that we come here. We come to, to church. We come and be in the fellowship of other believers um, and in here, this is where our God dwells. This is where we come to hear his voice. These are where God has put his means of grace by which the people can hear his voice and we can receive from him. And so, um, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for, for you all for being here. I'm so grateful for Christ. I'm grateful for his church. Uh, and I'm grateful for uh, the message that the Lord has been preparing this week for me. Um, so before we hop into that, though, let's start with a word of prayer. <coughs> oh God, Father, Lord, you are good and you are kind. Lord God, you've called us into this place of worship um, so that we might be able to um, reach and even touch the outer, um, the outer portions of who you are, Lord, but uh, not that you keep us distant, Lord, but you keep us near, that uh, in your church, where we hear your voice, where we hear, uh, where we see your people gather, Lord, we know that you dwell in the midst of your people. And Lord God, um, we're so grateful for that. We're so grateful that you draw near to people um, as unfit as we are. And Lord, um, in regards to being unfit, I, I recognize my unfitness for uh, the task for which you've called me this morning. And so Lord, I, I, I pray um, that you empower the preaching of your word, uh, not for uh, my namesake, but for your namesake, and not for uh, my abilities as an orator or my abilities to convey a persuasive speech, Lord, but that your word would be declared and that it would be stood upon this morning and that it would be received by the people and stored up in their hearts. God, uh, be with us. Be with us now as we hear the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, as many of you know, um, I'm entering into an interesting stage of my life. Uh, Alicia, my wife, is 38 weeks pregnant. Um, I've been dreading, like, preaching today only in the sense, like, what if, what if today's the day? You know, like, what if the, the moment is now? You know, I've been kind of on edge about that, but we've made it here, and I think we're in the clear. Um, but, uh, so I'm starting to process everything as, like, having a kid, right? Like, what that looks like and what it requires and... And this is just going to keep sinking, so if that's just like an awkward thing for you, it's going to, I'll keep lifting it and it'll keep rising. But, um, but the processing thing as a father is having a child. Um, and yeah, it, it's, a, it's a massive change. But one thing I've been doing, like listen, I've listened to a couple podcasts about being a dad, and I've you know, read some things about being a dad, and watched some YouTube channels, Dad University. Um, and in preparing myself for like what it's going to be like, and, and one thing that is a theme of, of fatherhood, of just being a parent, is presence. You have to be present with your child. You have to be there. 
Um, even in the opening days, you know, I'm reading about things, but like the significance of skin-to-skin contact and resting baby on your chest and how can you do that if you're not present, right? So presence is a powerful thing, right? Especially <coughs> in a time that we live in, um, we're so distracted. We're so caught off guard by uh, so many things, news, uh, news in any area, right? I mean, I mean, I'd get, I'd get probably 40 ESPN notifications a day, right? It's things that are just tempting me to go into being distracted. Um, and so presence, it's just something that is, is, it's, I think it's something we take for granted. It's something that uh, in our distractions, um, presence is, is, should be valued. As we know what it's like if you're, you know, you walk in from a long day of work and your spouse is home and you want to unload all the things that went wrong with your day, the idiot coworker who did this and the, yeah, you know, the frustrations of the kids doing this. And, and when you look at them to see what their response is, they're no, you know, nose deep in their phone. Right? The, the presence, uh, we should be present for the people that we love. Right? We should be present. Um, one of the times I think most vividly the, the power of being present for someone has um, Alicia's brother, Nick. He's a, he's a minister. Uh, he works at a church in Bernal, Missouri, a little, little town not too far from here. Um, he was out of town, but one day one of his congregants called him and asked him, if he could come to the hospital because her grandpa had just had a massive stroke and they didn't know how much longer he had and she wanted him to read to him the parable of the, uh, the vineyard workers. You know, that story where um, all the vineyard workers get paid the same wage um, even if they show up 10 minutes before the day comes an end. She wanted this read because her grandfather was an ardent atheist, didn't believe. And she was a Christian. She, you know, she went to his church and Nick was out of town, he didn't know what to do, and he just know, hey, Cody, he's, he, he goes to Ozark Christian College, just call him and see what he can do. So he calls me, I don't know what I'm doing. Not prepared for this type of thing, but uh, 10 minutes later, I'm at Freeman Hospital, meeting a woman uh, in, in the lobby, praying with her, asking her about her grandfather, and then we go up and we sit in the hospital room. We're probably there for, I don't know, 40, 50 minutes, could have been 10 hours, you know, it, was, it felt like it lasted forever. And he can't speak, the grandfather, so we're up there. Um, you know, I won't go into much of the details about what was said that day. Um, but I will always remember, for about the next year of my life, I would get messages from this woman, from this girl, saying how grateful she was just to be able to sit there with me and have us sit there with her grandfather who couldn't speak. There'd be long stretches of silence in that conversation. But just the presence, just being there, meant so much to this girl. Presence is powerful. Being there is powerful. And this takes us to the book of Zephaniah. I've talked seven minutes, and I think we haven't even gotten there. Um, Zephaniah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And this is a series, right? We've been in the series of the book of the 12, the minor prophets, which have been portraying for us portraits of the king, painting us images of, of Christ and what this season, this Advent season, what it's all about. <coughs> and if you have had that uh, J.C. Ryle Advent book that we've got in the back there, you kind of see that a lot of... Um, what this season is about is, yes, that Jesus came. Yes, he was born. Yes, he was who the Bible said he was. But also, he's coming again. It's, it's this Advent season where we look back at a time where Christ, where he was with us. He was in our midst. He's walked among the people. But it's also a time where we look forward, a time where we look forward to his coming again. Presence is a powerful thing. 
And what the book of Zephaniah does is it continues on these motifs, these themes of the books of the prophets, the minor prophets. Um, the big one, and the one we're going to look at a lot today, is the day of the Lord. Right? You've already, if you've been here, if you've listened to Levi's sermons, <coughs> we've already heard so much about how there is the immediate day of the Lord. And that means that Babylon is coming. Babylon is coming to Judah and will uproot them and drag them off into exile. And that is a day of the Lord. And it's marked with great judgment, right? That Israel and Judah, they're being judged by God for their, for their idolatry. Um, and so they're going to be dragged away. But we've also heard that this day of the Lord is a future event. Uh, the, kind of the, to get behind the curtain a little bit on this, uh, the way that the reformers talked about this, Calvin was big on this, was describing it as the census plenier. Census plenier. It means that there's an immediate context, there's an immediate meaning in the text, but oftentimes in the text, a fuller meaning, a deeper meaning, it will come to realization. And so when we're looking at Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 today, um, there is the recognition, all the judgment that we talk about, that was a real judgment, a real judgment that has taken place for the nation of Israel, for the nations. This is something that has really took place. And 587, uh, Judah was ransacked by Babylon. 587 BC, that is. Ransacked by Babylon, dragged out of there. Horrific details of how uh, the Israelites, how the Judeans were treated then. And that was the day of the Lord. But again, we look forward to another day of the Lord. And when we get to Zephaniah, yes, Zephaniah, its, it's context is that if we were just to look at the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah, bad news. It's bad news. The first chapter about Zephaniah plus a little bit of the second chapter is all about the uh, judgment that's going to fall on Jerusalem, the judgment that's going to fall on Judah. And yes, that actually takes, took place, right? We've talked about that Babylon is coming. And then in the second chapter of Zephaniah, we see that it's not just uh, Jerusalem and Judah that judgment falls on. It's the nations. It's all of Israel's neighbors, all the countries that surround them. They, too, are going to face this judgment. And so the universality of judgment because of their sin, um, if you were just to have the first two and a half chapters of Je Zephaniah, bad news. But then we hear this. Zephaniah 3, verses 9 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove you, remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lay down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with you, all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. All righty. Well, we've said uh, quite a bit about Zephaniah, the bad news, um, the bad news that is conveyed there. Um, And and to kind of personalize that, to kind of bring that home, to bring that to you. um, Maybe you've experienced tremendous tragedy. A phone call you weren't expecting from, from the horrible news you weren't anticipating. Or maybe you've been totally abandoned and betrayed by someone you love. Or maybe you've heard just a crushing, soul-crushing, life-crushing diagnosis that you weren't ready to hear. And I imagine Judah, upon hearing these words of Zephaniah, right, the first two and a half chapters, just receiving those words, it's despair, it's distraught, you, uh, disbelief. This is the land that the Lord gave our people. How is he going to remove us from it? And so, That in just a few short decades from when Zephaniah proclaimed this, when he prophesied this in Judah, that the enemies of God will triumph over the people of God. And they will destroy his very dwelling place. They will destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And if this is all it was, this is bad news. But but there's such a message of joy in Zephaniah uh, chapter 3. It's the good news, a message of unbridled hope for people in utter despair, for people facing circumstances inconceivable to them. This is the first good news um, that, they, that they would hear after receiving such, such horrible, horrible, life-changing news. And so I think what we see in these texts, um, excuse the alliteration, right? This is kind of hokey, but this is what I see in this text, and this is what I think the Lord what he's done for the nations, what he's done for the fate of Jerusalem. Um, we see four movements in, the, in this text. Um, the first is reversal. It's a reversal. And so uh, the fate of the nations will be reversed. We saw in verses 9 and 10 that Zephaniah proclaims that the nations, that they are converted. Um, a lot of the sections in the verses that we read start with something like, on that day, or for at that time. Um, those are just markers indicating. Remember, um, there is a future fulfillment of the day of the Lord. And and what Zephaniah is talking about, what we just read in those uh, 12 verses, it's the future day of the Lord. Keep that in mind. uh, This fulfillment, if it's kept in mind to the local context, it's going to be, there's going to be despair. There's going to be, it's not going to look right if we think this this is the day that the Judeans were going to have upon returning from Babylon. But this is speaking forth of this day to come. 
So at that time, on that day, we're talking about the day of the Lord uh, in the future, the one that we all wait for. And he says uh, that the Lord will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. They call upon the name of the Lord. This great reversal of their attitude from what we've seen before, where the nations, they, they stood as the enemies of God. One of the great themes of Zephaniah, this whole book, is that what it does is it takes the first 11 chapters of Genesis and reverses them. It's this great reversal. Um, it's so interesting. So in Genesis 1, if we were to start there, God creates. We read all about God creates. He's creating everything. In Zephaniah 1, we see the exact, exact opposite, that God, he decreates everything. In Zephaniah 1, verses 2 and 3, it says this, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Genesis 1, we've got creation. In Zephaniah 1, we see decreation, the sweeping away of everything created. And then Genesis 10, um, this is the table of nations. We see the, the lineage given of uh, Noah, his descendants, and all the nations that come from them. And then in Zephaniah 2, what we see is the destruction of all those nations. And in Genesis 11, um, famous for the Tower of Babel. If you guys remember that story, the Tower of Babel, um, the people, they want to make a name for themselves. And they all work together, they share one language, and they try to build a tower up to God. They make a name for themselves. And what is the judgment for them? The people are punished by God. He confuses their language. And then he disperses them. He scatters them so that they may not make a name for themselves. And then in Zephaniah 3, verses 9 and 10, we see that the people, they are blessed. The nations, they are blessed. They are brought together. And what does the Lord do for them? He gives them a pure speech. He gives them a language that they can understand each other. He brings them together. And then he, he, they don't make a name for themselves Instead, what they do is they call on the name of the Lord. It's not their name they're interested in, but they're interested in his name and calling upon his name. And so the judgment of Babel, uh, the nations, they are so rightly deserved. They, they rightly deserve their punishment. But what we see in Zephaniah 3 is that it will be reversed. The nations, their, their, their judgment is reversed. And this doesn't come to a surprise as us in the New Testament, right? We're told in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? That go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we hear the Apostle John in the great uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. He says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white clothes, singing with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the fate of the nations, they are reversed. That takes us to the next thing that the Lord is doing in verses 11 through 13, that there's a promised return. The people will be returned the remnant will be turned. Zion will have her impurities removed and her people returned. And so, keeping this in mind, um, we know this in the Christian faith, right? That impurities will be removed. Repentance is a necessary uh, part of the Christian life. That impurities have to be removed before, um, 
impurities have to be removed so that we can be holy. And so in the immediate context of, uh, of Judah, of Zephaniah, that their rebellion, their idolatry against God has brought judgment upon them. And that is why they're being dragged out. Their judgment is that they will be dragged out and that they will be sifted. And that when they return, they so recognize the work of the Lord, his judgment, that there are people made pure. There are people who recognize the mightiness of their Lord, that they recognize the sovereignty of their God and their goodness in his goodness. Those who do not draw near to God, those who are not humble, they will not inherit Jerusalem. But after being delivered out of Babylon, those who escape cannot help but believe in the goodness of the Lord. They return to Jerusalem, and they're eager to seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They rebuild the temple, and they will worship their God. They will graze and lie down. They have a good shepherd. Uh, Psalm 23, some of the most famous words in all scripture, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We have a good shepherd. They have a shepherd. The Lord is their shepherd who will guide them and um, feed them. But keeping in mind the future day of the Lord. Um, again, these are people that will be returned. Those of us who have strayed, his people, um, we will be returned to the presence of the Lord. So the fate of the nations are reversed. God's people will be returned. And what is their response? This takes us into the third portion of Zephaniah 3, verses 9 through 20. What is their response? Rejoice. The result of God's people returning to God will lead to rejoicing. Now, these are some of the most remarkable words in the scripture. Like, if, you're, if you kind of tuned in and out, I get it. This is where you tune in. This is the good stuff. This is, I know nothing better in scripture, a more beautiful picture of what it is for the Lord and his people to be together. So to read it again, Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17, it says, This is Israel's response to their being returned. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. This is actually a switch. This is the prophet proclaiming this. This is no longer the Lord speaking. This is Zephaniah saying to the people, This is what the Lord will do. This is what we will do when we're with the Lord. We will sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. We will shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. You with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This imagery, right? We all know, right? We've all, even in the service today, we're called to worship. We're called to sing. We're called to rejoice over the Lord. But he will rejoice over you. The Lord. Maker of heaven and earth, of all good uh, blessings, who's blessed you so richly, who you owe all worship to, who you sing to, who you're commanded to sing to, he will rejoice over you. He will sing over you. Like a warrior coming back from battle who has a feast set upon, like set up for him because of the victory, 
he comes and he has this feast and he enjoys his victory. And in doing so, he doesn't sing for the rejoice of himself. He rejoices over you. The king of Israel, he's in your midst. This is some of the beauty of, of, of the Hebrew language is, is some of the poetry they use. This is what you've probably heard as a chiasm, right? So you get like something stated, point A, and it's got a mirror point later on, right? Point A, point one, right? And it's building it. And so um, to kind of simplify it down, we hear about the, the Lord, your king, he's in your midst, right? He's royal. He deserves your worship. He's your Lord. And then the parallel to that in verse 17 is that he is your warrior, right? We hear throughout scripture that God, you know, we talk about him, he's loving, he's kind, but the Lord fights for you. The Lord fights for you. He's a mighty warrior. He's going to accomplish great things. He's going to deliver you. And so our warrior, King God, he will be in your midst. And then we also are told, um, so those are the parallel points there. That next step is um, that we will be told that um, that we will rejoice, right? So rejoice, that idea of rejoicing. So yes, he's in our midst, but also it's the rejoicing factor. We rejoice over him and he rejoices over us. And that center of the chiasm, the main focus of it, is that you will fear never again. The idea that you could never fear again, that you wouldn't have anxiety or stress or concern over something, that the Lord will provide so abundantly for you that being in his presence, the presence of this mighty warrior king, that you will have no fear, no concern, no anxiety. He's delivered everything. He has delivered you. He is mighty to save. And so how, how does this happen? How, how, how do we see that the Lord is in, in, in our midst? And so, yes, in the future day of the Lord, the second coming, but we can trust in that second coming because he's already shown up here. He's already shown up once. The advent, the king of Israel is in your midst. We've seen this in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, son, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He was really here. He showed up. He was here. He has been in the people's midst. And because of this, we can trust in the fact that, that he will come again. And, and when he does, we will never fear. And it's not just a principle. That's one thing I love about this text, is that chiastic center, the you will, not, you will not fear. It's stated as a principle. But then in this prophetic message, these are the words of Zephaniah, in breaking is the word of the Lord, where the Lord says, he tells you himself. It's not just a principle, right? It's not like, if my, it's not like I just tell my wife, like, you should know that I love you, and you should always trust in that. No, it's, 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 it's better to remind her that you love her, to use your words that you love your spouse. And in the same way, that's the Lord breaking in here and saying, it's not just a principle. No, he says over you, fear not, O Zion. Do not fear. This is a tremendous day that we look forward to. This day of the Lord. If you are in Christ, the day of the Lord, what better day is there? A day of hope, a day that the current struggles that you're facing, whether it's medical, financial, the stress of your life, these things, they weigh heavy on you. And what the message of Zephaniah is, is it's not like Babylon's not coming, right? That's not the promise. The promise is that Babylon is coming, right? That you will face 
trials in this life. You will face unbearable trials in this life. But the promise and the hope of this book, of Zephaniah, is that even in the midst of those trials, that you can have hope because your assurance, your victory, your blessing, your sustenance is taken care of. In this world, it may not look like it with all the things going around you, with the decaying of our bodies, the decaying of our culture, but it is the promise of the Lord that victory's already been won. He is a mighty king and a mighty warrior. The day of the Lord is guaranteed. This day is for you if you are in Christ. On the day of the Lord, when we are with him again, it will be blessed unparalleled. He will have reversed the fate of the nations. He will return his people to him. We will be caught up with our king and rejoice over him, and he rejoices over us. And the last thing that we see in Zephaniah 3, um, verses 18 through 19, is that the Lord will make his people renowned. Renowned. Kind of a funny old-timey word. It just means to be made famous, to be glorified. And so the Lord, um, the Zion, its inhabitants, the Lord will restore them, and he will make them renowned. Verse 320 says, At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. <coughs> Pardon me. So, again, remember the immediate context. That Judah, they will return to Jerusalem, Right? They'll be dragged off into Babylon, but in some time after that, they'll come back. And they will rejoice, and it'll be a good time. And guess what? They rebuild the temple so that God can dwell with them again. But does it stay that way forever? Like, they build the temple and it's good to go? No. Whether it's Canaanites, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Romans, Ottomans, Jerusalem will be under siege in this life, in this world. They will continue. Uh, the hope that is, is brought in this temporal sphere, it's temporary, right? It's just, it's temporal. But Zephaniah reminds us that at the end of our pilgrimage through the wilderness of this life, our weary heads, hands, and hearts, that they will be brought home. We have the hope of a future day. Hope is faith. Hope is faith looking forward. Right, that it is the belief in the reality that on that coming day, so much that our current circumstances, the, the horrible things you're going through, that they are light momentary afflictions, as Paul says in Second Corinthians four sixteen, he says that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Zephaniah 3, 20, uh, 3 9 through 20. Um, it reminds me of the hymn, This is My Father's World. So let me just read a couple lines from it. It says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. No matter what the current circumstances that you face, whether that's now, whether you hit the wall, 10 years from now, 5 years from now, you will face 
extreme circumstances, hardships in this life, trials that seem impossible to deal with. The Lord has promised his people a day where all these wrongs will be righted, where all tears are dried, where all pain, sorrow, and sickness, they come to an end. Where all the saints, all of you, all of God's children, those who are in Christ, are once again with him. And we will look on him face to face. We will be truly in the midst of our king. The good news of this coming day ought to move our hearts, leaps and bounds within our hearts. It should cause us to praise him and to say with the saints in the future revelation who sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Let us pray.